Good morning again. All right, get situated here. Glad to be here with you all today. Again, um, we are closing out our series today in this Colossians 1, this whole idea of, of full reconciliation, this series we've been doing about five weeks or so. Uh, we've kind of just been working through the first chapter of Colossians chapter 1, and we're actually going to get to the part of this section where it kind of inspired the whole series of this idea of reconciliation, this fullness of reconciliation that we experience. But just to recap last week, we talked about Jesus as the sustainer of all things, right? I made a terrible comparison of Jesus to the Atlanta airport, right? And the chaos that ensues within the airport, that there's these air traffic controllers that make some kind of semblance of peace amongst the chaos. And we look at Jesus and we look at the world around us and although bad things happen and people might question where is God when these bad things happen? Why do good things happen to bad people? God is especially present amongst the chaos. God is especially present among those places where he doesn't even seem like he is present because in those places his hope and his truth can shine the brightest. Right? We talked about his strength in those places in our weaknesses and we talked about kind of two things to take away from that is to worry less and to surrender more. Two things that are very easy to say out loud but different to, to, to contextualize within our lives. So hopefully you're able to see Jesus as that sustainer, even in times of difficulty, even in times where you do not see Jesus physically in your lives, to know that, yes, he is in those places and to rely on his goodness. So today, like I said, we're going we're gonna to finish out and we're really going to focus on these words this morning. And Tyrone led the song uh, In Christ Alone this morning, and it kind of hints on these words, th these words that are kind of some, somehow, in some ways, over our heads. But I hope to make it a little bit more clear this morning. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. When I read these verses, I'm immediately transported back to my freshman Bible class at Harding University. When I went to Harding, I was a Bible major. I actually transferred there as a sophomore, so I guess it was technically my sophomore freshman level Bible class. And I am going to be honest with you. I did not know much about the Bible when I went to Harding. <laughs> uh, I felt like I was the dumbest guy in the room. Sometimes I still feel like that. Most of the times I still feel like that. But I went to Harding, and I felt like the dumbest guy in the room because I just was not as, uh, as uh, smart as everybody else when it came to the Bible. Uh, but it was in this class, my professor, his name was Ken Neller. Uh, unfortunately, he did pass away about seven or eight years ago. Um, but Ken Neller, he gave me hope because he kind of told me his story. And his story was that he was the dumbest person in the room when he went to Harding. Uh, he said that he went to school and he didn't even know the books of the Bible. Like he just knew who Jesus was and he was just really turned, you know, fired up by that. And I was like, man, if Ken Neller, Dr. Neller, if he can be that guy, I can be that guy too. I can learn and I can come to know more and more about the Bible too. So he really encouraged me. But as I read these verses, I thought of him because he brought this idea to me first when I was 19, 20 years old. And it really just blew my mind. The fullness of God dwelling in the body of Jesus. Right, the fancy term that we like to use sometimes when we try to sound smarter than we ought to it's called the hypostatic union. And I'm really curious how we're going to sign that this morning. Okay. I wanted to include that just to see. Okay. Um, but it's a, it's a silly word. So we have jargon in everything that we do. 
but all it means is that there's 100% God and 100% man dwelling within the body of Jesus. Right? Nod your heads if you're with me. 100% God and 100% man dwelling in the body of Jesus. And I remember as a, as a sophomore level Bible student hearing that and saying, wow, that changes everything. That fraction doesn't very, very much add up, but that, that's why it kind of changes everything. And what I love so much about what the kids are learning right now is that if you walk into some of these classes, I think they're still up. There's a poster on these kids' wall that say this exact same thing. He's fully God and fully man. And I'm super glad that your kids are learning that before they're 19, 20 years old, getting a Bible degree from a place that's probably too expensive. For them. Anyway, never mind. I'm not going to get into that. Um, but our kids are learning that right now. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Because, guys, this doctrine, this truth is so, so important to everything we've been talking about. This 100% God and 100% man is extremely important. God was pleased to have this truth, this fullness dwell in him, 100% God and 100% man. And please don't feel bad if this is the first time you're hearing this. I hope it's the first time you're hearing this because it will change a lot for you. You see, the the difference is we can't just say 50-50 because if it's only 50% God and 50% man, then there's something missing there because if he's just God, coming down, there's a little bit of a disconnect that we're going to experience from Jesus, right? There's this divinity that's coming down almost holier than thou. I am untouchable and unreachable. I am unapproachable, and I definitely can't resonate with the pain that you're experiencing on this world. If he's only God, there's no relationship in that way. But if he's only man, He's only man, right? There's plenty of great men and women who have walked this earth and done great things, but every single time that man or woman, they live their life and they die and they stay dead. Jesus was not just man, but his manness, not his manliness, right? His manness, his humanness allows that relatability for us to have with him in a personal way, right? We read through the Gospels about him crying with his friends, about him mourning the death of friends, about him sharing meals with his friends, encountering conflict with people, very, very human things. He even suffers death, just like everybody in this room is going to suffer one day. And it's because he's fully man and fully God that all these things can be true, but he transcends all of this as well, right? This is extremely important because if it's not 100% God, he can't help us to transcend our, own, our, our lowly state as humans. And if he's not 100% man, we can't relate to him in that way. Thank God for the truth of the hypostatic union, right? Thank God for the truth that he is fully God and fully man because it changes everything. It changes everything. And this idea of the fullness dwelling in him is extremely unique when it comes to Jesus, right? Extremely unique. Because there's been other times in Scripture when people have encountered God in a very real way. We're going to go through a few this morning. So if you have your Bibles, they're going to be up here as well. But if you have your Bibles, I want you to follow along as well. Our first stop along the way is going to be in Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, we're talking about the fullness of God dwelling in Jesus, but there's been other times where God has encountered people and things do not go as well as they did with Jesus, okay? It's a little bit different. So I'm going to read here in in Exodus chapter 33. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, leave these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. 
You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, where my glory passes by. I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face you must not see. And you know what happens next if you've heard the story before, right? He receives the Ten Commandments. He has this exclusive experience with a little fragment of who God is. And his entire countenance changes, right? Moses becomes radiant. And when he sees Aaron for the first time, Aaron is freaked out. He is scared by what is going on with Moses because the radiance of God passed by him in a glimpse. This is far from the fullness of God, and this is how Moses interacts with him, right? And, and you can hear the desperation in Moses' voice when he's, when he's calling out to him, I need something to go back to these people with, and God says, I'm going to give you a little bit of me to tell the people who I am. And this is what we get. Over in Genesis chapter 32, this is what happens. The night, that night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the, Jeb, uh, ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and the man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that he was, his hip was wrenched and he was wrestled with, was, was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Excuse me, that's hard to say. Then the man said, let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him, and he passed by Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. And so within this context, Jacob and Esau are having some conflict, and things are about to come to fruition this next day. But in this brief time period, Jacob has to literally wrestle with God in this place, right? He is literally uh, having a physical altercation with God, and he is limping afterwards, right? It's a long time. I'm sure God's kind of pulling his punches maybe a little bit. I don't know. But in this place, he's struggling with God. And in this interaction with God, he gets a little piece of God, and his life is going to be forever changed from this place. 
far from the fullness of God, but a small piece of God changes his life, changes his name, and then changes the trajectory of all of God's people. A small sliver of God. I have one more, one more. In Acts chapter 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell on the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. The very person that we're talking about here, of course, you, you recognize is, is Saul slash Paul. It's the same guy who's writing this letter to the church at Colossae. He himself had a small fraction of what God can do on this world, and it made him blind for three days. Again, totally changes the trajectory of his life. He's on his way to persecute more Christians, to do what he thinks God is calling him to do, but everything changes when he gets a small sliver of the radiance of God. Far from the fullness of God, it changes everything. Now we go back. I want this all to be in context this morning as we look at these verses from Colossians 1.19. And there's more verses we could talk about. We could keep going on and on of a small fraction of God's great, like grace and, and his radiance coming upon people and things being very, very different. But then we read Colossians 1.19 and it says this, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. There seems to be a symbiotic relationship between God and this physical human body of Jesus. This should not be possible. But again, we have this 100% Godness and 100% manness living together within this body, and it transcends everything. And God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. He's not untouchable. He's not this figurehead that's going to walk across this earth and just be a distant figure. No, he has a job to do. This is what it is. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Do you hear these two things again? that I'm talking about this manness and this godness, things on earth reconcile these humans and things in heaven take you far beyond your humanness. Only God has the ability to do that and he does it through his fullness in the body of Jesus Christ and eventually through his death shed on a cross, his blood shed on a cross. This is an actual representative between God and man and, the, and guess what? The good news does not stop here, right? It doesn't just stop in this place. We continue reading in Colossians chapter 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. This is all you're doing, people, right? But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Pause here for a second. I cannot stress this enough. This is a necessity for us to be with Jesus one day. This physical body is very, very important. By Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If 
you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven in which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is, what full this is the full reconciliation we've been talking about, right? This full reconciliation. And this is, I love these words that Paul slips in here. This is the gospel. And what does that mean? If you're in my teen class, I should hear you shouting out, this literally means good news, right? You guys are awfully quiet for hearing good news. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Through Christ's physical body, through his death and his blood shed on a cross, this full reconciliation happens. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Everything ever has led to this moment. Reconciliation is finally made fully possible. And I, and I say this, and we can be like, yes, this is the good news, and this is a, a fantastic thing for us to say and be about, and it's perfect. But I skipped over a verse. Stephen read it for us this morning, but I intentionally skipped over a verse because we have all this bigness happening, right? We have Jesus who is over all things. He's created all things. He holds all things together, right? We talked about this allness of Jesus, but I skipped this verse intentionally because I think it's calling us to do something very important. This is in verse 18 of chapter 1. He holds all things together. And he is the head of the body, the church. I just want to get this right so we're all on the same page. I'm going to read verses 15, and I'm going to get to this point, and we'll be on the same page. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You can't get more all than that. And then he shifts gears here for some reason. And he is the head of the body, the church. There's something significant here. It's almost like we're taking this huge, like, it's a space center view of all this thing. We can see the, the earth is this tiny marble, and then Paul takes it into a microscope and says something about the church. Because he's not just talking about the church of Colossae, he's, I think he's talking about us as well. It, it almost seems a little bit out of place. But it seems that in the middle of all of this, that the church has a really, really big responsibility in this reconciliation process while we're here on earth. It's not just Jesus coming in a physical body. It's not just the fullness of God dwelling in him. It's not a thing that just he has to do. It's a part of us as the church, as we follow the head of this body. It's part of our job as well. We have a responsibility when it comes to reconciliation on this earth. The church is very significant. The church is super, super important. And so I mentioned before that when I was a freshman, I guess sophomore at Harding, uh, I was really, really excited about ministry. I'm in Ken Neller's class. I'm learning all these things, the hypostatic union. And I'm just curious if you came up with one in the meantime. Um, learning all these things. And uh, I'm really excited. And one of the things you have to do when you're a Bible major at Harding is, uh, and, and you want to go into ministry, is you actually have to do an internship. 
and I loved my internship, and I was super, super excited to go into youth ministry, and I was pumped up, and, and everything was going really, really great until my life got a little sideways, and I made a few bad decisions in my life. Uh, a few things that, that, that made me question whether or not I was qualified to do ministry at all. And so I was contrite in heart. I was, you know, all the things that I needed to be, but I, I, I was also a little bit, uh, what's the word, cynical about the church. Because in my mind, I'm like, you know what, I've done this thing that removes me from ministry, and guess what, I don't even want anything to do with the church anyway. Because the church is full of hypocrites and liars and all these bad people, and they're just going to judge me. And I know people in this room are thinking those things right now about the church. I'm not, I'm, I'm just saying. But I was thinking all these things about the church, and I had all these things going on in my life, and I was going to do the right Christian thing. I was going to go before my home congregation, and I was going to confess my sins, and I had a piece of paper in my hand. I wrote it all out, and I said in the back of my mind, I don't care if these people ever accept me again. I'm going to read this thing. I'm going to confess my sins before the Lord and for my church. I'm going to do what's right between me and Jesus, and I don't care about them. So I read the piece of paper, and I started crying. And it was, it was an emotional experience for me. And in the back of my head, I got that, that record playing. These are a bunch of hypocrites who don't know me, who don't love me, who don't care about me. And, you know, by the end of the time I was reading that paper, I looked up, and about half the church was standing up, ready to embrace me. And it was a really, really life-changing experience for me because I went to Harding to learn all these things. I went to Harding because I loved Jesus. I was going into ministry because I loved Jesus. But the thing that I didn't know was that I also have to love the church. I also have to love the church, the bunch of hypocrites and the judgy people and all these things. And I'm saying these things out loud because that's the things that people often say about the church. But guess what? Everybody on this world is flawed. Everybody on this earth is a hypocrite and, and all these things that we talk about. But for some reason, we want to cast this on the church as the other group. All the things that we're reading about that Paul is talking about, all these things about Jesus, his head over, and all these things come together. Jesus cares for all those things, and he really cares about the church. So if Jesus cares about the church, I think we ought to care about the church as well. We don't just get to have this individual relationship and say, you know what, it's just going to be me and Jesus and everybody else. I can go to church with them, but I don't care about them. I don't love them. You're not allowed to do that anymore. If you are going to be part of this reconciliation process, if you're going to receive reconciliation from Jesus, you have to dish it out as well. You have to love the church and you have to love the people in the church that you don't easily love within your church. The church is deeply significant. Jesus loves the church so much. But what's so, so significant about this is that he doesn't leave us empty-handed in order to love the church. Yes, we are flawed people. It is hard to love some people, and I guess, I'm, I'm guessing some people find it hard to love me at times as well. I get that. But Jesus left us something behind that transcends all of our flaws if we allow it to. This is what he says in John chapter 16. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. 
All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said to the Spirit, uh, that is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. The Holy Spirit is among us. The Holy Spirit, it's one of those things where we talk about the fullness of God dwelling in Jesus. When you take on Jesus in baptism and you give your life over to Jesus, guess what? You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And that is a power I don't think the church recognizes that we have the capacity to, 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 to wield. Not in a selfish way, but in a reconciliatorial way. That we have the Spirit of God living, living within us to do things that we cannot do on our own. This full reconciliation, this fullness of God is dwelling in Jesus and the Spirit dwells within us. Does the church look like that sometimes? No. Do we have the capacity to? Yes. We absolutely have the capacity to look like a people that this is true about. So I want to encourage you to allow this truth to be true within your own life. As I promise I'm almost done, I want to bring this full circle to this whole series that we're talking about. This full reconciliation, accepting and embracing agape love and striving towards unity with Christ. And after this whole series and after what we read today, I want you to recognize that it isn't just unity, one-way unity with Christ. If you are going to be united with Christ, you have to be united with his church as well. That doesn't mean you have to be best friends, hanging out every day, texting each other every night, all that jazz, but you have to love the church like Jesus loves the church. Because as agents of reconciliation, we can do far more together as the church than we can as an individual. When we seek unity with Christ, when we seek unity with the church, not just in the things that we like or dislike, but on the unity of Christ, the world changes. That's why we have these books and we're sitting here 2,000 years later in central Florida talking about this. Because people are united with Christ in this way. Reconciliation is possible. And Jesus gives us that opportunity through unity with him and unity with the Spirit. And I wanted to have some kind of catchy way to end this series. And I don't want to be anticlimactic. But there's one thing I want you, I want you to burn this in your mind. This unity with Christ. And the only thing I want you to do is say yes. Say it one more time. Say yes. I actually didn't expect you guys to say it out loud the first time. But say yes. It's one of those things where some, so there might be some people in here that are saying, you know what, I understand what you're saying up here, but this is not for me. I am somehow below this. I honestly believe that is a selfish, self-centered response to the reconciliation power of Jesus. If you think you're outside of that reconciliation power, I want you to go reread Colossians chapter 1 and see that Jesus is con connected to all things, including your darkness. In all things... He is present in all things. The fullness of God is there and this full reconciliation is made available to you that you just have to say yes to. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for giving us the opportunity to spend some time in your word. I know we read a lot this morning. I, I hope that uh, everybody had their coffee this morning and was able to follow along, but I just pray that this pumps people up, that this truly is the gospel, that this is the good news, that this reconciliation power in Christ is made possible through your physical death and your heavenly being. Thank you so much for that truth. God, help us to be agents of reconciliation, not just on an individual level, 
but united together as the church that Jesus died for. Help us to reconcile together under the banner of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we want to offer an invitation. We do want to offer an opportunity to say, you know what? I do want to say yes this morning, but I don't know what to do next. That's okay. The first step is to say yes to this reconciliation. And the next step is allowing the Spirit to guide you along the way. If you want to be baptized, we can do that. If you need prayers, we can do that. If you just need to talk to somebody, we can definitely do that. Won't you come while we stand and sing?